Tonight I'm going to begin a series on the Ten Paramis. Uh, The Ten Paramis are sometimes called the requisites for enlightenment. These are uh, ten states of mind that we can consciously cultivate in our lives, in our practice, and through perfecting these paramis, they take us on the journey of awakening. These uh, ten qualities are generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving-kindness, and equanimity. I wonder, I don't know how it is for you, but when I listen to the list of those, just hearing those ten qualities brings joy to my mind. That um, they are really beneficial, delightful states. These are all an expression of the compassionate heart. Qualities that the awakened mind embodies. As we sit here, we're really working with cultivating our deepest aspirations of heart and mind. And, you know, Joseph has been speaking to us each week about mindfulness, um, the place of mindfulness in our practice. And as we practice, we begin to see that there is, at times, very wholesome states that arise in the mind. And through right effort, we can do, as the Buddha talked about, uh, we can arouse mental wholesome states that have not yet arisen, and we can... um, (laughs) We can also learn to maintain these wholesome states that have already arisen. And we do this through wise effort. When we look at cultivating these qualities of heart and mind, it's, you know, in one way, a way of resetting the default system in our minds that often our default system is based upon habits of greed, hatred, and delusion. And yet we find when we cultivate these wholesome states of mind that that is what the mind begins to turn to as a response to experience. So, you know, looking at the mind that is met with any experience and responds through these qualities, loving-kindness, equanimity, patience, truthfulness, uh, generosity, that that becomes the way in which we greet all that happens to us in our lives. So, when we work with these qualities as a practice, it's entering into really consciously relating to these qualities, coming to understand what are the causes and conditions that can give rise to these qualities, how can we nurture these qualities, and how can we perfect these qualities within our own hearts and minds. The path of perfecting the paramis is really told in the story of the Buddha before he was a Buddha, when he was a bodhisattva, one who had made an aspiration to attain complete Buddhahood. It's said that he began his journey four incalculable and 100,000 aeons before our present age. And if we don't know what this means, it means it was a very, very long time ago. (laughs) Um, He was at that time an aesthetic named Sumedha, 
and he was on the path of arahantship. And I think it's helpful to know that in Theravadan teachings, there are three paths that one can follow. One can be what's called a Samasambuddha, which is a perfectly enlightened Buddha who attained realization um, without having a teacher. And then having uh, realized that Nibbana, he turned, or t- turning and helping others to realize Nibbana, helping them on their journey. Or there's what's called a Pacheka Buddha, and this is one who uh, does similar to what a Samasam Buddha does in that uh, it's a person attaining to complete liberation without the help of a teacher, but they differ in that they don't then teach others. And then there is called uh, an Arahant, and that's one who awakens through the instruction of a fully awakened Buddha. And so in this lifetime, the Buddha-to-be was uh, named Sumedha, and he was, at that time, on the path of becoming an arahant. And it's said that at one point he heard that there was a fully enlightened Buddha, the Pankara Buddha, who was in a nearby town. And he then thought he would go and pay his respects to the Pankara Buddha. And when he arrived in this town, there was this whole chain of procession that was venerating the Buddha. And then when he saw the Buddha, he was deeply moved. He saw the nobility of the Buddha. You know, I don't know what it's like to meet a Buddha. I know that there's been some people in my life uh, meeting His Holiness the Dalai Lama. It had a profound impact. So I can imagine what it would be like to meet the Buddha. And so Sumedha found himself deeply touched and at that time, he realized that to become an arahant would be of immense benefit to the world, but to become a Buddha would have even more benefit. And so in his mind, he made a vow to become a Buddha in the future. And then as Dipankara Buddha was getting closer to Sumedha, uh, there was this big pool, wet, muddy ground that Dipankara Buddha was going to have to walk through. So very spontaneously, Sumedha threw himself on the ground so that Dipankara Buddha and all of the monks with him could walk over top of him comfortably. And as Dipankara Buddha was walking over top of Sumedha, he recognized the aspiration that was in Sumedha's mind. And he predicted that he would indeed fulfill his vow. And thus was the beginning of the path of being a bodhisattva, or an aspiring Buddha. It was also revealed to Sumedha that if he had not made this aspiration, he would have realized full enlightenment on that very day. But now that he had chosen the path of a bodhisattva, it would require lifetimes of practice to attain the ultimate goal. So afterwards, Sumedha was said to have gone to a cave to reflect on, how can I make this vast journey? What aspects of heart and mind do I need to develop in order to become a Buddha? What he reflected on was said to be the ten paramis, that these were the qualities that needed to be strengthened and brought to maturity in his mind. And this is what came to fulfillment as he sat under the Bodhi tree over 2,500 years ago. It's also said in Theravadan teachings that these qualities are not limited to a Buddha alone, but they need to be cultivated to some degree for anyone to realize the fruits of liberation. And all of these qualities are not beyond our reach. 
So these paramis, again, being generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving-kindness, and equanimity. Over the course of these next weeks, we'll be taking a look at all of these qualities. And the, the, these qualities are laid out in a specific order because it's said that, um, you know, begin, the first one is generosity, and beginning with that quality, that will help to strengthen the arising of virtue. So each, the perfecting of, the, of one helps to perfect um, the following virtue, or parami. <clears throat> and in hearing this list, you may have noticed that compassion wasn't listed. It's not specifically named, and yet it plays a really essential role in all of the paramis, because um, they have the characteristic, every parami, as a parami, of these qualities being a parami, is done for the benefit of others. It's said that all of the paramis are accompanied by compassion and skillful means, and untainted by craving, conceit, and views. As I speak about each of the paramis, I will be mentioning their characteristics, function, manifestation, and proximate cause. And in doing so, it's important to remember that they all have as their characteristic that of benefiting others, and as their function, the rendering of help to others and staying uh, steadfast in this, not wavering. And as their manifestation, the wish for the welfare of others. And as their proximate cause, great compassion, or compassion and skillful means. Compassion and wisdom. So compassion playing a really central function in all of these paramis, that they're all cultivated for the benefit of others. It's such a nobility of heart to really bring that in, cultivating these qualities for the benefit of others. In the path to awakening, we find that there always needs to be a balance of both wisdom and compassion. And we find this in the fruits when the mind becomes awakened. And this was very well put by Acharya Dhammapala, was a a monk who in the 6th century gathered together all of the teachings on the paramis, pulling them out from different places, and systemized them into a single treatise. He says, Through wisdom, the bodhisattva perfects within themselves the character of a Buddha. Through compassion, the ability to perform the work of a Buddha. Through wisdom, one brings oneself across the stream of becoming. Through compassion, one leads another across. Through compassion, one trembles with sympathy for all, but because of compassion, but because the compassion is accompanied by wisdom, one's heart is unattached. Through wisdom, we come to see in our own hearts and minds what frees the mind. Through compassion, we move to help and alleviate suffering in the world around us. So tonight we'll be taking a look at the first of these paramis, 
which is generosity. I always think of generosity as holding a, you know, it's kind of a special place in Buddhist teachings. We find that, you know, it was the very first teaching that the Buddha would give to lay followers when they came and asked him for teachings. Because it lays such a foundation for the unfolding of the mind. In the Buddhist lists, it appears as the first topic in the graduated exposition of the Dhamma, and it also is the first of the three bases of meritorious deeds, and it's the first of the four means of benefiting others, as well as being the first of the ten paramis. I've spent some time reflecting on you know, why it kind of falls in this beginning place, you know, what is it that is of such potency? Uh, You know, I know for myself that I I came to the path to be liberated and really had no idea that dana or generosity would be so intrinsically woven into this path. But on this journey, coming in touch with these teachings, being surrounded by, at times, many wise people who model generosity. It became, you know, it's something that I wanted to investigate because uh, I could see something of the benefits. You know, we can really experience the benefit of generosity in the moment of giving, just in that moment of how good we feel how the heart can feel so light, joyful, buoyant. You know, there's a sense of release as we offer. Also, you know, as I experience generosity from others, you know, just when we open to receiving, we can be deeply touched. You know, someone else's kindness showering on us. It's quite amazing. In doing so, I really came to see it as being one of the hidden gems in Buddhist teachings. You know, something that um, if I had you know, really just been sticking to a book and reading about Buddhism, I probably would have skipped over a lot about generosity. And yet, when in through practice and um, coming more deeply in touch with it, finding that it has such a profound impact and is of such immense value. I also have come to see it as being like um, the glass platter in which these teachings and this practice come to us. That, you know, there can be one sense of container in which we hear the words, we hear the teachings, we do the practice. And yet, that is all made possible through the generosity of others, going right back to the time of the Buddha. You know, if people in the time of the Buddha had not supported him, if he had not offered so freely of his wisdom, and if that had not been carried through, until today, we wouldn't have these teachings. And yet, it's almost invisible. You know, we, um, without being aware of it, we might not be aware of this quality that uh, is making these teachings possible, that of generosity. I've also noticed for myself, and I've, you know, it could have been that you know, I felt like I was born into this world with somewhat of a tightly clenched fist, always wanting to hang on to things for myself, taking care of myself, uh, being the center of my world. And then, through the act of giving, to step out of that self-referencing framework, that self cherishing framework, and to be able to turn towards caring about another. How profound that can feel to really deeply 
care about another, that we would offer to someone something that we have for their well-being. Through this, we learn to share. You know, and sharing can bring great joy to the mind. I have a very vivid image of a, a small child giving me something. And, you know, I can't remember what child it was. I just hold the picture of the, their face in my mind. And they offered me something, and in my receiving it, you know, their whole face just lighting up. And that's the joy of giving. That's what happens in moments of generosity. There's that relinquishment, releasing. And through this, generosity is really a way in which we can come to understand anatta. You know, and the teachings of anatta being that there is no solid, separate, unchanging self. That there's this deep web of interconnectedness. And through generosity, we taste of how in our lives we have relied on the kindness of others, how others rely on others' kindness. And it's all through this web of interconnectedness. When we cultivate generosity, none of these states are ever cultivated alone. You know, I may be seeking to speak about them individually, but they are just so entwined, and they help each other so much. And, you know, like in a moment of generosity, we're really cultivating all of the Brahma-viharas. You know, there's this, there's the quality of loving-kindness, where we're really wishing well for another. Uh, we're, we're caring about the welfare of another being. There's also the compassion, the act of giving something to help alleviate another's suffering. And there's appreciative joy, where we can delight in their happiness in a moment of receiving. And there's the quality of equanimity, where when we give with a pure heart, we give with non-attachment. We seek nothing in return. Generosity also helps us to develop the capacity to let go. And this is something that's crucial to the realization of freedom. We talk about it over and over and over again. And generosity is a really tangible means of getting a sense of what it's like when we let go. As we offer, really, if we're bringing mindfulness to the experience, we're really present for it, feeling that relinquishment, that letting go. And there's, you know, if we bring awareness, mindfulness to our experience, we will find many opportunities for generosity. And in each of these moments, it's another opportunity to let go and to feel the non-grasping mind. So in a moment of giving, we're letting go of desire or grasping. And at the same time, in those moments, we're abandoning aversion and ill will. Loving kindness is present in the mind. We're caring deeply for another. Aversion, anger, is not present. Generosity also helps the mind to become more pliable, less fixated, and this all supports the dispelling of delusion, helping us to see more clearly. 
we're also in moments of generosity, practicing wisdom, a reflection of wisdom. And this wisdom is in the understanding of the law of karma, that our actions have consequences, and that in moments where we can do a wholesome activity, wholesome action, have wholesome intention. This is planting wholesome seeds that will come to bear fruit. The Buddha once said, if beings knew as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would the stain of miserliness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared, if there were someone to share their gift. But because beings do not know, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they eat without having given the stain of miserliness overcomes their minds. It's quite likely that we don't know that the power of giving to the depth that the Buddha did. We don't know it to that degree. And you know, part of that is the result of the culture that we live in. That our culture points us towards that of accumulating things rather than giving away. You know, and many times our status is even defined by how much we have, by this wealth of accumulation. And so it doesn't, you know, give us support in the understanding of how important it is to give away. And as a result, we might find that who we give to is quite limited, that we have you know, quite a narrow field in which we work within, within ge- generosity. And so it becomes a practice for us, just as it was for the Bodhisattva, for uh, Sumedha, before he was the Buddha. It can be that in our lives that we might sometimes give because we think it's the right thing to do, or we might have habits of giving. And, you know, um, someone calls up on the phone and they ask for a donation and you just habitually give, and you don't give it much thought. Or sometimes we might give because we think we'll feel guilty if we don't give. So we give out of guilt. And what we do when we make generosity a practice is we really bring it into this realm of consciousness to uh, bring the quality of wisdom to it, to bring skillful means to it so that it can be this really joyful quality in our lives. It can be an open-hearted way that we offer And there's a Jataka tale about the life, and and the Jataka tales are actually all of the stories that the Bodhisattva went through before becoming a Buddha. And you know, there's numerous stories. And there's said to be ten lives, in in, in each life the Buddha was perfecting uh, one of the paramis. And in the story about when he perfected generosity, it's quite the story about you know, early in his life, he had this capacity to really give, because remember, he's perfecting it, so he's done it many, many times. And so, you know, even as a young boy, he would give really freely, and he just kept giving. And it came a point in his life, um, his father was a king, and then he at one point became the king, but he gave so freely that the people in that um, township got upset and they didn't want him to be king because he was giving away what they thought of was so much value. And so him and his wife and his two children were sent off in, uh, they, were, they were shut out of the community. And 
what was very interesting to me is when it came to the point of his giving, needing to give everything, he had to relinquish his children and his wife. He had to freely offer them, and he did. You know, he just freely offered such with his capacity to giving. And actually in saying that of the story, it can sound really brittle but uh, harsh. And yet the, those beings were also protected. There, there was a really wholesome karma surrounding all of these activities. But it was, you know, just kind of the reflection that the capacity to give can be taken to an amazing depth. You know, and, and also in reading about generosity, there's uh, three um, types of giving where one can give kind of ordinary things, or one can give great gifts, or one can give when it's really difficult, or there's a sacrifice that's made, and yet one still gives. And, you know, that for me is something that I have spent some time reflecting on because it's not easy. You know, it can be easy to give uh, when we've got a lot or when something isn't of so much uh, value to us. But when it's something that is really dear to us, it becomes challenging. But that is the path of the bodhisattva to give that which is most dear. I had you know, just a very small experience um, with that, that sense of, of giving where it's more difficult. Where last year, you know, I did give something that kept coming back to me over a period of time because it was affecting the, the way that I lived my life and the choices that I had to make. And sometimes I couldn't have what I thought that I would really like to have. And you know, in a mo- there could be a moment where I'd really falter and think, oh, if only I hadn't given in that way. You know, and, um, but what I found very empowering in that moment was to fall back upon my intention, my, uh, what, what the underlying intention had been in that act of generosity. And that was always, to me, so much more uplifting than what I saw that I couldn't have. You know, I couldn't have a dinner out, or I couldn't, you know, whatever I couldn't have was so small in comparison to the joy that I experienced in reflecting on that moment of giving. So I'd just like to touch upon the characteristic function, manifestation, and proximate cause of generosity. So generosity has the characteristic of relinquishing oneself and one's belongings. Now this is where we give of material goods, financial aid, the offering of our attention to those in need, could be offering of energy, time. Sometimes we might relinquish our views and opinions for the benefit of others. And through this relinquishment, developing the habit of sharing. So bringing this uh, characteristic of relinquishment into our consciousness. Generosity has, uh, the function of it is that of dispelling greed. So it's really a way of actively working with this force of greed in the mind. This, you know, uh, if we look at it in just the level of material goods, how many times do we hang on to things that we don't even want or need? And yet, the, the, the habit of greed is so instilled that we just can't let go. And as a result, our lives become more and more cluttered, which you know, can just be a reflection of uh, what it's like in the mind when we can't let go, when we can't uh, dispel this greed, when we keep hanging on. 
when we're caught in this greed, we get caught in what's the opposite of generosity, and that's miserliness, where we hoard for oneself. We hang on to things. But with wisdom, with mindfulness, we really begin to see the fault of stinginess, miserliness, or greed. We see the pain, we experience the suffering that is so different to generosity. So true generosity really takes us out of our self-cherishing frame of reference and helps us to connect with the welfare of others. It's an active expression of care uh, for others, happiness and well-being. And of course, this is not true uh, in moments where we might be giving to enhance our own self-image or giving to try to get something back. You know, the, the purity uh, is not present at these times. The manifestation of generosity is that of non-attachment, where we're freely and spontaneously relinquishing. This leads to a favorable state of existence. The proximate cause of generosity is an object that can be relinquished. If we pay attention in our lives, we see these many times that we can relinquish objects, that we can offer. When we do this offering for the benefit of others, So the characteristic of generosity is relinquishment. The function is dispelling greed. The manifestation is non-attachment. And the proximate cause is an object to be relinquished. The power of generosity is said to be dependent upon three things. The purity of the giver, the purity of the gift, and the purity of the receiver. Some understanding of this is quite obvious. We can, you know, readily see that if we give from a place of freely offering, it's very different to offering something, to want to get something back. Or sometimes we might offer to make someone else uncomfortable. We can also see that if we give a harmful object, that that would not have so much uh, benefit. And um, the aspect of speaking about the purity of the receiver is something that I'd like to speak about a little bit more because I think that we can hold that in a way that could actually be not very good if we don't really understand it. It, um, The Buddha talked about there being an enormous benefit to giving gifts to a Buddha, to arahants, to uh, fully enlightened beings, to sangha. I mean, he listed a whole uh, list of people in in a specific order that um, could be very beneficial. 
And if we just were to hear that list and think to give only to those who are really worthy and noble and not to give to anyone who had a taint in their heart, it would become an excruciating process that would bind us in our own hearts. For one thing, it's really hard to know the purity of another's heart. That, you know, we have many camouflages in life. And who are we to really judge another and really deeply understand where a person is coming from? What is important is to learn to give whenever we have the opportunity. And in doing so, that it may be at times that we will be offering something to somebody who maybe is not behaving in a way, in a skillful way. And yet, we still might offer them something. And this becomes even stronger as compassion grows in our hearts because we know that person is acting unskillfully and that will lead to more pain in their future life when we understand karma. And so what uh, the Buddha also said that when someone gives with a purity of heart, that purifies the act of giving. So in our own lives that, you know, there can be times when maybe a really uh, amazing teacher comes to town and we offer freely, and that, you know, can be greatly beneficial. But there are also many other times when what is important is just to be with that spontaneous act of the heart to give. Although generosity is said to be a very wholesome action, our motives for giving also play into it, uh, play into the karma that is created. And probably in our lives there's been times when we have given with either a mixed motivation or with motivations that are not so wholesome. The suttas list some of the motives for giving, and I'm sure we can all relate to a few of these. One gives with annoyance or as a way of offending the recipient or with the idea of insulting them. One gives through fear. One gives in return for a favor done in the past. One also may give with the hope of getting a similar favor in the future. One gives because giving is considered to be good. One gives because of altruistic motives. One gives to get a good reputation. Or one gives to beautify and adorn the mind. Something that's really touched me about the motivation for giving is that when we really understand the law of karma, we understand that each time we give, we are giving uh, for the benefit of others, and out of that, we benefit, and out of a real purity of intention, we are giving uh, for the realization of nibbana, or liberation. It's said that generosity associated with wisdom before, during, and after the act is the highest type of giving. So examples of this are, you know, when we do understand the law of karma and the benefit of planting wholesome seeds, or where we're giving with an awareness of impermanence, You know, we're giving with wisdom when we understand that we, uh, as the giver, are impermanent. The gift that we are offering is impermanent. 
and the receiver is impermanent. And another example is, as I just mentioned, is where we're motivated to do so through understanding that this action actually helps to strengthen the aim of one's efforts to awaken. And if all of this seems confusing, Mother Teresa says quite simply, it does not matter how much we give, but how much love we put into giving. Even though we live in a country that has many outlets for giving to charitable organizations, many different opportunities, for myself it really wasn't until I went to Burma that I began to understand more deeply that of dana or generosity. Burma is a country steeped in Buddhist teachings, and you know that was a great joy in itself in practicing there that there was uh, a lot of respect, a lot of support given to people who went for a period of time and did intensive practice, you know, which can have quite a different feeling to uh, practicing in this country where can be family, friends, uh, co-workers have no understanding of what we're doing and you know, find it very difficult and you know, at times not very supportive of what we're doing. And yet Burma, because there's more of an understanding, uh, great support is given to people practicing. And so all the time people come to the monastery and they're offering their services, they're offering time, um, offering of food. And because Burma is such a poor country, to see people coming and offering so freely is quite amazing very humbling at times. You know, and I found many, many moments when I was touched by the generosity of the people there. One time I was traveling in a car with a Burmese Sayadaw in an area of Burma called Sagain Hills. And Sagain Hills is a very beautiful part of Burma where it's largely made up of the monastic community. And so there's many monasteries, there's many nunneries, and there's pagodas, unbelievable amount of pagodas all over the place. You know, some of them really beautiful, some of them in states of decay, Um, but just a tremendous amount of work, time, and energy has gone into uh, all of these monasteries, nunneries, pagodas, shrines. And as I was traveling through this area, this Burmese Sayadaw suddenly says to me, everything that you see has been donated. And, you know, I was just struck in that moment by the power of generosity. I also remembered how at one time the Buddha had been asked, where should one give? And he said that one should give where one has confidence. And so around me, I was just seeing the confidence that people had in these teachings, how much confidence there was. I feel really happy too in this day, in this time, in this moment, to sit here in this building, to sit here in this center, and to know that it too came through this same generosity. It's, when I practiced here, I found it so powerful, as I live here, to keep reflecting on this. And this being an expression of confidence in the Dhamma. You know, beings had so much confidence, gave so freely. One of the things I found in being in Burma, too, 
And there have been so many acts of generosity that it was contagious, infectious, that it really uh, had an effect on me. You know, I tended to go to Burma uh, taking in my bag everything I thought I could possibly need. You know, just thinking, what don't they have in Burma? What will I need there? What could I possibly encounter? As a result, arriving with very heavy bags. And then through this contagious element, through this just wanting to share, wanting to give, whenever I leave Burma, the bag is empty. It's just, it can't help but be. And so, you know, when we can practice generosity in our lives, it can have this effect on others. It can help others to, to lighten their load, to realize this uh, relinquishment. As we work with generosity, we will come in contact that which opposes generosity. It may be that we don't have patterns of giving, that our habit has been not to give, even if we have much to give. And so what we can do is just to begin giving. And in that way, we come to know the joy of giving. It can also be that we think that what we have to offer is inferior or not good enough. And so we find that we're afraid to give. What we can do is give anyways. Or it can be that what we have to give really seems quite beautiful and wonderful, and it seems too good to give away. In these times, we can recognize that for the sake of enlightenment, it is most beneficial to give the highest offerings. And then we can really begin to rejoice in being able to give something that is of great value. We might also find that there's a fear of giving because we think that we might need the object in the future. At those times, we can reflect on the nature of conditioned um, things and that they all pass away, that we can't really hang on. And that, you know, our greatest inheritance, our greatest... um, What's... not finding the words... Uh, Well, when we really understand karma, that a way that we care for ourselves in the future is to care, plant these wholesome seeds. And so by giving now, in a sense, it is really um, creating the causes and conditions for us to be in a beneficial position in the future. Acharya Dhammapala said in his treatise on the Paramis, good returns to the one who gives without concern, just as the boomerang returns to the one who threw it without concern. Generosity does not stand one-sided. You know that when we open up to the practice of generosity, we also have to open up to the practice of receiving. And this, too, can be very difficult. Again, I think our culture doesn't help us very much. That, you know, if you start to listen to when people offer even small things, how, you know, 
I've seen in myself how many times I can say, oh, thanks, but no thanks. You know, it's okay. I don't need that. You know, I'm not sure why in those moments one can have that habit of rejecting the offerings of another. But when we understand the power, the, the importance of generosity, it readily opens us up to receiving because we don't want to cut somebody else off from the... Uh, potential of their offering. So, now if in the practice of generosity we come encounter difficulties, this is all a part of the practice. And these are just habituated tendencies we have in the mind. Through making it a practice, bringing generosity into consciousness, into working with these habits. And it can also be helpful in making it a practice at times to reflect upon our acts of generosity. And this is something the Buddha actually encouraged people to do. Um, for some of us, you know, we think, ooh, you know, that's just going to build up my ego, my sense of identity. Oh, look, wasn't I great? Look what I gave. And yet that's not what the motivation is for in doing it. But it can be that in reflecting on it, that it can be a way of lightening the heart, gladdening the heart, It reminds us that there's moments in our lives when we do act in a wise and skillful way, that we have done about things in our lives that bring about wholesome results, and that we do have this strength to relinquish, and we have the capacity to touch others. there are many benefits to generosity. And once the Buddha asked a woman named Vasaka, who was a chief uh, female patron, as to what the advantages of her generosity were. And she said that when she hears a particular monk or nun has attained any of the fruits of recluseship, um, and if that monk or nun had practiced where she made offerings, uh, then she would be certain that she has partaken of the offerings, then she, re- oh, sorry, she reflects that she has contributed in some manner to uh, his or her spiritual distinction, and that she takes great delight in this. Joy arises in the mind that is delighted, and then when the mind is joyful, the body relaxes, She went on to say, when the body relaxes, a sense of ease is experienced, which helps the mind to be concentrated. And that helps the development of the spiritual faculties, the spiritual powers, and the factors of enlightenment. And then the Buddha, upon hearing this, replied, Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. And this description really is a description of how these seeds of generosity lay the foundation for the unfolding of the mind, the awakening of the mind. The retreat setting is quite a unique setting to be working with generosity because it's not going to be beneficial if we suddenly start giving gifts to all our fellow yogis, or we start asking the office to go out and buy gifts to give to everybody. Um, That's not what's going to be of great benefit. The generosity we experience in retreats has a different form. We give to each other the gift of silence. Living by the precepts, we give the gift of fearlessness. 
we can give the gift of allowing people to go through their own process without our interference. We give the gift of presence, attention. And the Buddha once said that the highest gift was the gift of the Dhamma. And so there can be no higher gift than the realization of awakening, this being an offering of the gift of Dhamma. So our practice can be based on generosity, giving the gift of Dhamma, realization of Dhamma. So Dhamma or generosity being based on letting go, non-clinging, relinquishment, a heart filled with compassion, loving kindness, caring for the welfare of others. It helps to uproot the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion in the minds. It's helpful in the understanding of karma. And through this, the mind becomes more pliable, less fixated, more resilient. And this helps to bring about a happiness and an ease in the mind that is supportive to awakening. Dana, generosity, being the first of the ten paramis. So let's just sit for a moment. May our generosity lead us to the highest happiness. sharing of blessings. <clears throat> now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers, guides of great virtue, my mother, my
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.